Chapter 24 My ears rang with panic. I'd closed my eyes, bracing myself for an arc of blood to catch me across the face, but the hot, wet splash never came. I opened my eyes and uncurled my hunched body. Like the volume being turned up on a radio, Alexandria's scream appeared on the horizon of my awareness. It was a long, sustained movie star's shriek. She was staring at the nebula of flesh that was suspended in front of her. It spun slowly, a long pink streak of mist and foam and jellyfish-like hunks. I swallowed bile as I stood up and walked in a wide arc around the Dillon cloud. There were a few recognizable spots. A toenail floated like a translucent seashell caught up in the froth of a wave. An eyeball dangled, ripe and whole in the center of a fog of blood. I made my way to Alexandria and put a hand on her shoulder. She stopped screaming, and in the vacuum left by the absence of her scream, I heard the slam of doors up and down the hall outside. Alexandria, I whispered. Alexandria, hey. She turned her head toward me without taking her eyes off the tendrils of Dylan that hovered nearest her face. Yeah. Her voice was shaking. You need to put him back together, Alexandria. Can you do that? Please? Some distant corner of my mind congratulated itself on the steadiness of my voice. She shook her head and tears spilled from both her eyes. She didn't seem to notice them. I don't. I, I didn't. What? I gestured to the exploded boy. He took up most of the center of the classroom. It's okay. You're not in trouble. That probably wasn't true, but this wasn't the time for honesty. I just need you to put him back together and everything will be okay, okay? She shook her head hard and kept shaking it for too long. She started rocking back and forth. I gently cupped a hand along the back of her head and she went still. She whispered, I didn't do this. I don't know how to do this. I couldn't. Miss Gamble, she, can you do it? Voices in the hall. Footsteps far, but not far enough. Can you do it? But of course I couldn't. I tried for less than a second, the way I always had, the way I'd always told myself I wasn't trying. I tried to reach out with something that wasn't my mind, with that something that Tabitha and Alexandria and Rahul and everyone here but me seemed to know how to access. It was a habit that I pretended not to have, and yet I did it then. I tried to reach out, and I failed like always. I couldn't do it. I would never be able to do it. I snapped my fingers next to Alexandria's face. Hey, I said, my voice sharp. This one's on you. Put him back. Come on, we don't have much time now. She finally turned to look at me, turned all the way, and I caught my breath. All of the magic was gone from her face. Her hair was still blonde, but next to her scalp was an inch of dark brown roots. Her eyes were smaller, closer together, and she had a pimple on her chin. I would have been willing to bet that when she opened her mouth, I'd see crooked eye teeth. She didn't look all that different, though, other than the stark terror in her eyes. I don't know how, she pleaded, and I believed her. Okay, I said, okay, let's just, let's try. She grabbed my hand, gripping it so hard I felt the bones grind together. Let's try this. 
Imagine, I scanned my memory for something, anything from the journal, but there was nothing. All of it was so abstract and recursive and self-referential, but then I landed on a memory of Tabitha, nine years old, trying to help me understand how she'd made a daisy grow super fast, how she'd explained it. Imagine that your magic is a swimming pool, okay? Now hold your breath. Alexandria nodded, her eyes locked on mine, and took a deep breath. She didn't exhale. Okay, I said. Now. Now freeze the water and then dive in. It hadn't made any sense at all when Tabitha said it that day in our parents' backyard. She'd said that, and I'd been so frustrated, so furious, that I'd stomped on the daisy and run inside. I'd locked myself in the bathroom and filled up the sink and spent an hour staring at the water, willing it to ice over. It still didn't make any sense to me, but Alexandria's face grew determined. Her eyes unfocused, the same way Tabitha's had the time she'd turned all the salt in Mom's salt cellar to quartz. The Dylan cloud began to spin faster. The toenail and the eye drifted close to each other, and I had a wild urge to shout, don't scratch yourself. I held my breath as the pink fog picked up speed, whirling not into a funnel, although I kept watching the bottom of the cloud, expecting it to narrow. Rahul's voice echoed in my memory. Alexandria always seems to be right in the eye of the hurricane, though, which I guess would make Dylan the hurricane. And yet, the cloud didn't tighten at the bottom as it spun. Instead, it drew into itself, thickening in places. As I watched, as Alexandria stood beside me as still as a cat, the cloud formed a tight sphere. Mountains formed on the surface, then separated themselves away from the loose planet of flesh, revealing their substance. I fought down bile as a long spool of intestines spun out into a Saturnine ring, Three flat plains of dark purple rested like lakes before tremoring and sliding together into a beating heart which hovered like a spasmodic moon. It clenched and unclenched around nothing for the space of a minute before a fine flow of red and yellowish motes fizzed up from the surface of the sphere and began to flow through it, pulsing in time with the movements of the heart and sketching a wide ellipse. Oh my God, I whispered. Bones formed, marrow first. Half of a brain branched backward from each of the eyes. Two crystalline networks of nerves, fine as spiderwebs, sketched the shape of a body in two pieces. Long, meaty muscles began to group themselves together, looking disconcertingly like pork hanging in a butcher shop window. I wondered if Alexandria would be able to assemble it all, or if Dylan would fall to the ground in pieces. The spinning slowed, and I let out a little breath I'd been holding in an attempt to lessen my dizziness. I tore my eyes away from Dylan's liver to look at his sister. She was sweating profusely. Her hair had gone limp and wet, and she was reaching up to wipe at her eyes. Her lips were white. Alexandria, I whispered, not knowing what I would say, and not sure if I should put a hand on her shoulder or if touching her would ruin all of this, would leave Dylan dead. She shook her head without taking her eyes from her work and bit her lips so hard that I saw a thin line of blood appear under her tooth. I looked back to Dylan just in time to see skin sheathing each half of his body. His eyes had eyelids now, and they were closed, but I could see his heart beating in the left half of his chest. It was worse, somehow, seeing him almost put together. It was harder than it had been to see him in pieces. The two halves drifted toward each other, spinning as slowly as the mobile over a baby's crib. 
They pressed against each other and the seam in his skin began to heal over. It was like watching a sped up video of a flower blooming. His skin formed a scab and then a scar and then it was smooth and then I wouldn't have known that there had ever been a fissure there at all. Alexandria made a small sound from the back of her throat, a sound like a weightlifter gripping a school bus by the bumper, and then Dylan began to float across the room. He drifted down to a lab table on the other side of the room, landing as gently as a leaf falling from one of the black oak trees that lined the school campus. She collapsed, then retched. I didn't look back at Alexandria as I ran to Dylan, weaving between chairs. He was unconscious, but breathing. I pressed two fingers to his throat and felt the strong, rapid thud of his heartbeat pushing back. A sound exploded out of me without my permission, half sob, half laughter. He's alive, I said. Someone in the hall outside the classroom let out a ragged scream. I looked up from Dylan just in time to see Courtney shove her way through a crowd of students that had gathered outside of the classroom to watch through the windows. She burst into the room, still screaming. Dylan, oh my God, Dylan. She ran toward the spot where I stood over Dylan's still body. She ran through a fine blue-gray powder that littered the floor, the remains of Dylan's clothes, if I had to guess. Her foot slid through the thick dust, and she tripped, sprawling headlong across the front of the classroom. There was a thick, wet crunch when her face hit the linoleum. Oh, Jesus, I said, looking frantically around for Tabitha. I couldn't handle this on my own anymore. There was just too much. But my sister was nowhere to be seen, so I went to Courtney and helped her up. Blood poured from her rapidly swelling nose. Fuck, 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 I muttered, freezing up with my hands six inches from Courtney's shoulders until Alexandria appeared in my periphery. I turned to look at her. She still wasn't wearing her magical enhancements, but she looked steadier than she had just a moment before. I think I can help. She said it like a question, and before I'd even taken a split second to think it through, I was nodding. She reached out and took Courtney's hand, threading their fingers together. Courtney flinched away, but Alexandria held fast to it, biting her lip. Imagine your magic as a tree, she murmured, and I could picture 14-year-old Tabitha clear as day, trying to help me understand how she made a feather levitate. It's like if magic is a tree, but all the leaves are made of taffy and you just pull it. Courtney cried out, and there was a smell in the air like strawberry lemonade, and then we all looked at her nose. It was still swollen, but it had stopped bleeding. Courtney backed slowly away from Alexandria. Her foot slipped in the blood that had dripped onto the floor. She was shaking hard, too hard to call it trembling. I glanced at the window that looked out into the hallway. There was a massive crowd out there, just watching, silent. I had never seen so many eyes before, so many stunned faces. The clock above Tabitha's desk ticked five times. It felt like hours. The door to the classroom burst open and Rahul ran in, followed closely by Torres. Mrs. Webb eased in a few steps behind them, then waved her hands at the windows. They went dark, but the after image of all those faces burned in my vision. From outside, I could hear voices, Toph and another teacher trying to break up the crowd. What is going on in here? Torres said in a voice that felt inappropriately calm. I tried to figure out where to start, but before I could say anything, Courtney interrupted. She did what she did to me. She did it. She did what Miss Gamble did, and I, she did it to him. Is he dead? Did he die? What did you do? With this last word, she lunged toward Alexandria. 
Rahul caught her by the shoulders and held her in place, even as she kicked and screamed nonsense panic sounds like a cat trapped under a fallen branch. Mrs. Webb? Torres said sharply, and Mrs. Webb stepped forward. She placed her palm against Courtney's forehead, and the girl slumped over, unconscious. Thank you. Rahul scooped the girl up and gently placed her on Tabitha's desk. He hadn't looked at me once since he came into the room. Now, Miss Gamble, Torres said, leveling a cool stare at me. What exactly happened in here, and why, she added crisply, is there so much blood everywhere? Excuse me, uh, sorry, Alexandria said, and it didn't sound like her at all. She was quiet, almost timid. I'm sorry to interrupt, but Miss Gamble, I mean Ivy, she didn't do anything. Torres looked at her with the same removed stare, evaluating, then nodded. What did happen then? Well, Alexandria started stammering. We were talking. Ivy, can I just call her Ivy instead of Miss Gamble? It's confusing because there's like two of them. Okay, well, Ivy was was asking me some questions, and then it uh, it turned out Dylan had snuck in and was doing his invisible thing to spy on us. Torres sighed, then nodded. This was an everyday occurrence. He was really upset because, uh, she flushed. Because Ivy said I was the chosen one. And then my hands got hot, and then Dylan uh, exploded. Mrs. Webb went very still. Go on, she said quietly. I think I blew him up, Alexandria said in a quavering voice, and tears started to stream down her cheeks again. I think I blew him up, and then Ivy came, and she told me how to put him back together, and then Courtney came in, and she tripped and broke her nose, and that's... Why, there's so much blood. Her chest shook as she held back sobs. You can't have blown him up, Mrs. Webb said, peering at Alexandria like she was some exotic new species of jellyfish dredged up from the uncharted depths of the ocean for study. You can't have, it takes years of, but uh, then your hands. The old woman walked to Dylan, still on the lab table. The heat of his skin fogged the sealed black surface of the table. She flicked her wrist and a long Osthorn blue sheet billowed over Dylan, covering him from the chest down. She pressed her hand to his forehead, and I wondered if she was performing some magical evaluation I would never be able to understand, but it looked for all the world like she was a grandmother checking a child for a fever. She shook her head. This is impossible. This isn't something that happens by accident. Please, Alexandria whispered. I'm sorry, I don't know how I did it. I didn't mean to. That's all right, Torres said, laying a hand on Alexandria's shoulder. It's okay. We'll talk about it in my office, all right? You're not in trouble. Alexandria nodded. Okay. Then she turned to me. I'm sorry. Thank you. I didn't. I didn't do what you think I did. I nodded at her. I believe you. I didn't know for sure if I was telling the truth, but her face forced the words out of me, and not with the body slam of emotion. It was the change in her. She looked completely haunted. She looked afraid. She looked terribly, terribly young. I thought about the story she'd been building for herself, a girl, a young woman in charge of her world, unstoppable, fearless. But that girl had never encountered anything this frightening before. 
She'd encountered drama with her friends and her parents and boys and grades. Maybe she'd seen bullying, intimidation, violence. But in all this time, she'd never encountered anything so frightening as her own power. Let's go to my office, Alexandria. Torres put an arm around Alexandria's shoulder and started guiding her toward the door. Mr. Chowdhury, please come with us. I'll need your assistance. Mrs. Webb, would you mind waking the other two and they can join us? Mrs. Webb nodded and Torres, Alexandria, and Rahul walked out. I didn't see if Rahul turned to catch my eye as he left the room. I couldn't stand to look in case he didn't. It was just me and Mrs. Webb. I realized I had no idea what her first name was. She rested her hand on Dylan's forehead again, and something about the position of her fingers was different, but it was nothing I could have described in a report. He took a deep breath, a gasping, choking breath, and sat up. What? What happened? He looked at Mrs. Webb like a drowning man might look at the shadow of a whale shark. Oh my God, I was... What happened? Mrs. Webb peered into his eyes, but didn't see what she was either worried about or hoping for. You aren't the chosen one, my boy, she said. She didn't say it gently, but she wasn't cruel either. She was ripping off a Band-Aid and must have known that wasting time would only make it hurt more. Dylan heaved an immense sigh. Okay, he said. He nodded to himself, then to Mrs. Webb. Okay. I'm not the chosen one. He laughed softly, still nodding. Something seemed wrong. The boy who had been ready to tear Alexandria apart was gone. It's your half-sister, Mrs. Webb said. I'm sorry, I know you two don't get along. No, now don't try to deny it, but it's her. She's more powerful than anyone you've ever heard of. And she's going to need a friend in the next few years when the prophecy is fulfilled. Dylan pushed himself off the edge of the counter. It's funny, he said to Mrs. Webb. Neither of them seemed to remember that I was still in the room. It's funny, but I'm not so worried about it anymore. He looked like he was going to say more, but he interrupted himself with a wretch. He doubled over, clutching the sheet to himself, and gave three long, hacking coughs. He held his hand to his mouth and spat something into it, something that clicked against his teeth. What is it? Mrs. Webb asked sharply. What did you find? Dylan pulled out a tiny blue marble, smaller than a regular marble, but bigger than a ball bearing, and handed it to her. I don't know. This isn't mine. I, oh, I don't feel so well. She rolled it between her fingers. Hmm. Go along to Ms. Torres's office, Dylan. I'll be there shortly. He walked out of the classroom with the sheet wrapped around him, sparing me the barest of glances as he passed, lingering for a moment next to Courtney's still unconscious form. I started to raise my hand in a wave, but he was already gone. Mrs. Webb walked to the front of the room. I drew up beside her. What is that? I asked, gesturing to the little ball in her hand. She touched it to her tongue before dropping it into my palm. If I had to guess, I'd say it's his obsession. I stared at the little ball. No mystery swirled within its depths. It didn't feel warm. It didn't vibrate. It didn't glitter. It looked like a funny little marble, like something a grandpa would have in his cigar box tucked away on a shelf somewhere. 
Is that something you can do? It may just, I mean, you can just take something out of someone like this. Of course not, Mrs. Webb murmured. I was a healer for longer than you've been alive. This is impossible. But then there's a prophecy for you. She shook her head. Young Mr. Cambrai is probably only just starting to show us what can be done when magic is applied the right way, or rather when magic is applied her way. What do we do with it? I asked. You dispose of it, she answered. It's medical waste. Really? That seems, I don't know, wrong somehow. Does it? She asked. If you had your gallbladder removed, would you want to save it just because it pained you for a decade? I considered the little marble, then set it on one of the lab tables. I guess not. Huh? Mrs. Webb picked it up and hucked it. It smacked into the trash can near the door with a loud, satisfying ping. She approached Courtney and pressed a hand to the girl's forehead, then jumped back as Courtney sprang off the table. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I can't believe she did it to Dylan. You have to stop her. Mrs. Webb looked at me, apologetic, and then slapped Courtney smartly across the face. Courtney's mouth shut with a little pop. I'm sorry, young lady, Mrs. Webb said, and she sounded like she meant it. You're panicking and you have to stop. You're safe. Nothing bad is happening to you. But Dylan, Dylan is safe too, Mrs. Webb said. Everything is fine. Now, we're all going to go to the front office and you're going to talk about whatever you need to discuss. Courtney looked between Mrs. Webb and me. She shook her head. No, she said slowly. I don't need to talk to anyone. Are you sure about that? I asked. You seem pretty, uh, traumatized. I'm sure, she said, looking away from both of us. All right, Mrs. Webb said. She turned, walking toward the door. I looked between the two of them, trying to figure out what to do, then dashed out the door after Mrs. Webb, leaving Courtney in the classroom alone. Wait, I called, and Mrs. Webb paused in her brisk walk down the hall. Wait, don't you think she needs, like, counseling or something? She seems really freaked out. She just saw her secret boyfriend explode, Mrs. Webb said, dry as kindling. Courtney will be fine. She might be a little panicky for a few days, but then they'll make out and she'll have a big personal revelation about true love, and then she'll be back in school next Monday with new bangs. Mrs. Webb patted at her immaculate hair. I've seen it a thousand times. Always a crisis with these girls. I didn't know what to say. It seemed wrong. It didn't seem like enough but I didn't know how to say that to someone who clearly thought it was so much more than enough, so I watched her head down the hall away from me, slow and stately. Something didn't fit. I stood in the hall by myself, uncertain. Where could I go from here? But before I could decide, Courtney eased the door to Tabitha's classroom open behind me. Oh, Courtney, I said, reaching for her automatically. She looked up and down the hall, then slowly sank to the floor, sobbing. Oh, God, uh, oh, man, what, what are you? I stood there not knowing what to do with my hands. She was sobbing harder than I'd ever seen anyone cry, worse than Tabitha on my couch a few days ago, worse even than my dad sitting on the edge of the empty hospital bed in our living room so many years ago. It was a kind of sobbing that seemed to come from below her lungs, from the deep, aching roots of her. 
Finally, desperate, I grabbed her under the arms and half pulled, half carried her across the hall and into the empty library. I steered her to a chair and she sank into it, folding her arms on the table and sinking her face into her elbows. Hey, shush, hey, I said over and over, rubbing her back in small circles. I've never been good at comforting people, never really known what they might need. But the low drone of my voice seemed to help, and after a while, her sobs diminished and became hiccups. She lifted her head, and her eyes locked on mine. Oh, God, she moaned. Oh, God, I can't believe, I can't believe it happened to him, too. Chapter 25 Ice water rushed through my belly. What did you say? She gulped. It happened to him, too. What happened to me? It's so awful. He's gonna have nightmares for weeks. I sat in a chair across from her and digested this. Alexandra had played me. She had played us all. I don't know how I did it, she'd said, but she'd done the same thing to Courtney. When? How many times? How many people had she put at risk? This girl is a monster, I thought. And then I thought of all of the people alone in an office with her right now. Dylan, Torres, Mrs. Webb, Rahul. I cursed myself for not grabbing my recorder out of my bag before I left Tabitha's classroom, but I had to know. I had to ask her. I had to be my own witness. What did she do to you? She sniffed hard. She did that, what she did to Dylan. Oh my God, Dylan. Can you tell me about it from the beginning? Courtney wiped at her eyes and a long streak of mascara smeared from her eyelid to her temple. Okay, she said. Okay, I, I think I can tell you because, I mean, Alexandria is gonna tell everyone anyway, probably. A bead of sweat traced its way down my spine. Would Alexandria tell everyone or would she show everyone? It was when I needed the abortion. Ms. Capley, she didn't want it. She wouldn't give me the potion. She, uh... She said I was too pregnant for it. I thought I was just eight weeks, but she said it was probably closer to like 10 or 12. And so she said, the, she said the potion wouldn't work. She sniffed every few words. So then Alexandria told her to give me the other kind of abortion. The surgical kind? I whispered, but Courtney flinched as if I'd spit at her. Yeah, she said, the surgical kind. But then Ms. Capley was like, no, you have to go to the doctor for that. It's not safe to do it here. And I was like, okay, but I can't. And she was all, I'll make it happen. Wait, who? She shook her head. Alexandria. She said she'd make Ms. Capley give me the surgery. And Alexandria tried to make her do it, but she just wouldn't. And so then I went to Mrs. Webb, but she was like, no, it's too dangerous to do this outside of a clinic. And she tried to give me a referral, but like, she just totally didn't get it. She took a deep, ragged breath. Anyway, so then Alexandria was like, don't worry about it. And she got Ms. Gamble to do it. I shook my head. Slow down, Courtney. You're talking too fast. You're getting mixed up. So Alexandria was like, don't worry about it. And then she did it. She, uh, I made a blowing up motion with my hands. Alexandria did the surgery. Courtney shook her head, her brow furrowed. No, she said, wiping her nose on her sleeve. No, she threatened Ms. Gamble. Alexandria has some kind of, I don't know, some kind of leverage over her or whatever, so she made Miss Gamble do it. 
The sweat that had dripped down my spine froze into an icicle of horror. Miss Gamble, as in your theoretical magic teacher, she performed your abortion. Yeah, she said, drawing out the word as if she thought I might be a little slow. I rubbed my eyes. Walk me through it. What exactly happened? Courtney looked like she was going to throw up, but I had to be sure. I had to. Well, she said. She, uh, we went into her classroom and she had me lie down on the lab table. And then she, uh, her voice had gotten so soft I had to lean in to hear her. She kind of rubbed her hands together and she kept saying, okay, 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 like she was hyping herself up. And then she said, here we go, deep breath. And then I was kind of, I was everywhere. A tear rolled down her cheek. I could see all of myself. Like I was floating above my body, I think. I mean, I, I was, my body was in a big cloud and I couldn't feel myself. And I could see this little, uh, this little blob kind of toward the middle of me. And then Ms. Gamble, she reached out with her finger and just sort of, she made a plucking motion in midair with her thumb and forefinger. And I could see myself, but I couldn't see myself. And I was just in this big cloud. And then she said, oh, wait. And then she was focusing really hard. And then um, I came back. The tears were flowing freely now, but Courtney was staring unblinking at her hands, seemingly unaware of the fact that she was steadily crying. I thought of Dylan's heart grasping at empty air. I came back, and it didn't hurt at all or anything, but I don't know. I don't know. I saw all of my insides, like, spooling back in, and she started to hyperventilate, and I jumped up to rub her back again. Okay, I said, let's just take slow breaths. Slow, slow breaths. Here, put your hand on your belly like this, okay? Now, take a deep breath. Hold it. Hold your breath. There you go. I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing, but something in all of that worked well enough to keep her from passing out or vomiting. I don't feel well, she said in a soft, high voice like a little girl. That's okay, I said. Let's get you to the office, okay? I thought back to what Mrs. Webb had told me about surgical magical abortions. It's perfectly safe if it's done by a medical professional in a sterile environment. The girl gets a sedative, so it's not too traumatic. If what Courtney was telling me was true, then Tabitha had performed an abortion on one of those lab tables, classroom desks with gum barnacling their underbellies. She'd performed an abortion with no sedative, no painkillers, nothing. She'd done the magical equivalent of a bathtub appendectomy performed with a rusty screwdriver and a watch strap to bite down on. No wonder Courtney was freaking out after seeing Dylan go through the exact same thing. I towed Courtney down to the front office. I kept up a steady wash of soothing phrases. It'll all be okay. You'll be fine. You're safe now. I had no idea if any of it was true. If I'd been betting on it, I'd have said none of it was going to be okay. But I kept her calm enough to put one foot in front of the other. Wait, she whispered when we got to the front office. My hand was an inch from the doorknob, but I stopped and looked at her. She was staring at her feet. What is it, Courtney? I kept my voice soft. 
I just, um, before I go in there, because they're probably going to call my dad and then I won't probably talk to you again. She sniffed, pulled out her blazer. I just wanted to say I'm sorry if my texts freaked you out or whatever. I shook my head. What texts? She pulled out her phone and scrolled through a string of messages. They were all addressed to me. The picture of me and Tabitha outside the bar, the shot of Tabitha breaking into my house. Are you safe? I looked between her and the phone. Why? I didn't want anything bad to happen, she said, hunching her shoulders. I saw you talking to Miss Gamble, and then Dylan told me about the note he left you, and I just thought, I thought maybe I could help. But you were too scared to say anything directly, I murmured, trying to keep the words from stinging her the way they would have stung me. She nodded. I'm ready now, she said. I just wanted to say, to say sorry. Okay, I said, feeling awkward. Thanks, then. I think I understand what you were trying to do. When I opened the door to the front office, Mrs. Webb was making a harried phone call. Yes, well, young man, I'm a mandated reporter, she said in a voice that made me want to snap to attention. And I'm telling you that I've got a prophetic fulfillment over here and I need official attention paid to it. So, who will you be sending over? She saw us waiting and held up one long, knobbly finger. I guided Courtney onto one of the benches where truants and cheaters sat. I waited near Mrs. Webb's desk, watching Courtney shiver out of the corner of my eye. She looked small and exhausted there. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear it, Mrs. Webb said with grim satisfaction. I'll expect your agent here within the hour. If it takes longer than that, I will be calling again. Is that understood? I imagined the person on the other end of the phone sitting up a little straighter in their desk chair. As Mrs. Webb hung up, I glanced between her and Courtney, unsure of how I should begin. Mrs. Webb, I said, do you remember our conversation in the teacher's lounge? She fixed me with an X-ray gaze. Of course I do, Miss Gamble. I'm not senile yet, you know. I crossed and uncrossed my fingers, a nervous tick that I hadn't lost myself in since grade school. Well, uh, Courtney had a surgical abortion performed on her on school grounds, and I think someone should take a look at her to make sure she's okay. I had thought that Mrs. Webb was sitting stiffly before, but her posture then was nothing compared to the deep-rooted stillness that overcame her upon hearing about Courtney. I felt like the entire room was looking at us, listening. When did this take place? She asked. I glanced over at Courtney, who was staring at her feet as though she'd never seen them before. Without looking up, Courtney whispered, It was the third day of school. Mrs. Webb narrowed her eyes, deepening the network of creases that branched from the corners of her eyelids. She stood from her desk, walked to where Courtney sat, and looked down at the girl. Who did this? Courtney looked at me. I looked back at her, not understanding, until suddenly I did understand. She wasn't sure if she could say it. She wasn't sure that it was allowed. She doesn't remember, I said, startling myself. I hadn't known I was going to lie until the words had already left my mouth. Courtney nodded, tears filling her eyes, and I wondered what extra damage I'd done by implicitly demanding that she pretend she didn't know who had performed the dangerous illegal procedure. Yeah, she said softly. I don't remember. 
I can remember needing it done, but when I think about it, it's just... Her eyes were glassy. It's too much, you know? Mrs. Webb lowered herself into a stiff crouch in front of the girl. Courtney's eyes went round, and I'm sure mine did too. It was strange to watch the normally stern woman fold herself down into such a comforting position, like seeing a bird do a push-up. Mrs. Webb took both of Courtney's hands and spoke to her softly. Did you see it, or did the person who did this to you give you some medicine before the procedure so you wouldn't have to see? Courtney started breathing hard and fast, and Mrs. Webb placed a hand over the girl's chest. It's okay, Mrs. Webb said. I'm just slowing your heart rate and your breathing a little bit so you don't hyperventilate. Her voice was low and soothing, super calm, as if she were trying to hypnotize Courtney. Courtney took a few deep, slow breaths, then nodded at Mrs. Webb, who hesitated for a threadbare second before removing her hand from Courtney's chest. Courtney took two more slow breaths, unassisted, before she answered. I didn't get any medicine, she said. It just kind of happened. I saw it all. I saw how. I saw all of it. Her voice trembled halfway through her answer, but she maintained steady eye contact with Mrs. Webb. Have you talked to anyone about this? Mrs. Webb asked in that same low, steady voice. Courtney shook her head and Mrs. Webb nodded. Okay, I'm going to find you someone to talk to. No, I'm sorry, but you will have to talk to someone, Courtney. What you went through is highly traumatic. It's illegal. And the person who did that to you didn't take the proper steps to protect you. Do you understand? Courtney didn't quite nod, but she blinked a few times, and that seemed to be enough for Mrs. Webb. You're a very strong girl, she murmured, squeezing Courtney's hands. It takes a lot to go through what you went through. But you're not alone anymore. She straightened abruptly and looked at me with a ferocity that Dylan would have envied. Ms. Gamble, a moment, please. She walked into the hallway without waiting for me. Before I turned to follow, I caught Courtney's eye. She looked at me warily, and I'm sure she was wondering in that moment if I was an ally or a threat. I wasn't sure what the answer was. When I stepped out into the hallway, Mrs. Webb was waiting for me, and I could tell that she wasn't waiting to congratulate me on a student well-counseled. Well, Ms. Gamble, she said, arms crossed. She only came up to my chin, but she was still towering over me. My stomach twisted in that familiar principal's office way. You've got some answers for me, I trust. I blinked, then wondered if I was blinking too much, then wondered if not blinking would be more suspicious. What answers are you looking for? I said, trying to speak in a super normal voice. Who performed a back alley abortion on this student at my school? she said, and although her voice didn't carry the same wave of obey me manipulation that I would have expected from Alexandria, I felt compelled by the sheer power of her disapproval to tell her everything. But I couldn't, I couldn't throw Tabitha under the bus like that. Not without knowing why. Not without knowing what had happened with her and Sylvia, not without answers. It was not lost on me that I'd been fully prepared to shove Alexandria headfirst under the bus I was now attempting to save my sister from. It was not lost on me that I was giving the benefit of the doubt to a woman who had performed a procedure for which she was absolutely unqualified, endangering the life and the well-being of this young girl. But I couldn't bring myself to tell Mrs. Webb the truth. I don't know, I said. 
she doesn't remember. I think she was too traumatized. Maybe with time and therapy, Mrs. Webb shook her head at me. Try again, Ms. Gamble, she said, and my heart was pounding, but I dug a nonchalant shrug out of the very bottom of my well of fortitude. I wish I could tell you, I said. Are you going to be able to take care of her? I mean, is Courtney going to be okay? I don't know, Mrs. Webb answered, her eyes still narrowed, still locked on my face. I certainly hope so. But there's a reason that surgery isn't usually performed in high school classrooms, Miss Gamble. I told Alexandria de Cambray so, and I told your sister so, and I told Sylvia Capley so. There's a reason that sedatives and anesthetics in sterile environments are a critical aspect of patient care. Whatever happened to young Courtney, and I highly doubt that what happened to her was anything approaching the isolated proper procedure that would have been performed in a clinic environment, it will have left scars, lasting once. I didn't bite my lip, and I didn't look away, and I didn't clear my throat. I kept my eyes steady on hers. I nodded. If I find out who did it, I'll tell you, I said, and the lie fell between us like blood dripping onto a white silk blouse. I'm sure you will, she said. And I fell two inches tall as she walked back into the front office without another word. Something she'd said was stuck like a splinter under my tongue. As I tried to get a firm grasp on it, my feet carried me toward the library of their own volition. I walked in and closed the library door behind me, leaning against it, drumming my fingers against the doorframe. It was too much. It was too much, and I couldn't do it by myself. I was alone with this impossible thing. I wasn't Tabitha. I wasn't smart enough for this. Mrs. Webb said that she told Alexandria that surgery shouldn't be performed outside of medical facilities. She said that she told Tabitha the same thing, and she said that she told Sylvia that too. Be smarter, I hissed to myself, squeezing my eyes shut. There was something I was missing. They all went to Webb to see if she could perform the abortion. That already made sense. That fit together fine. But then it didn't. Because Sylvia already knew that it was too dangerous. So what was she going to Mrs. Webb for? That was it. That was the thing. That was the thread I needed to pull on. I tried to get a good grasp on it, but the books in the theoretical magic section were whispering so loudly and things got slippery. It was hard to remember what I was supposed to be thinking about. The books were getting louder. I dug my fingernails into my palms and tried not to pay attention to them, to the place I was in, to the way that everything here constantly reminded me that I wasn't magic. I just needed to pull on that thread, just needed to let myself see the shape of the thing that Sylvia asking Mrs. Webb to help was about. I just needed to be as smart as Tabitha. But I wasn't magic. I wasn't brilliant. I was ordinary. I wasn't Tabitha. I was nothing but Ivy. Ivy. I heard it again. Ivy. And again and again, layered over itself. Ivy, 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 Ivy. I whipped around, but there was no one by me. I was awash in my own name, spinning, trying not to panic. Then, just as the whisper stopped and silence fell over the library, I realized that I knew exactly where to find the end of the thread, the one that started with Sylvia asking for help.
I didn't know what would be waiting for me there, but for once, I knew exactly where to go. Chapter 26 By the time I'd made it to the theoretical magic section of the library, the whispering had started again. This time, they were back to being incomprehensible. A sorcerer tide of words that sounded like they should have made sense, but which didn't fit together to form phrases I could recognize. I stood outside the aisle trying to look in, but I felt the same dizziness as I had the first time I'd visited the library with Mrs. Webb. Tabitha, I called, and I could only just hear myself over the whispering of the books. Tabitha, are you there? It's Ivy. I felt like an idiot, yelling into the end of the shelf that divided theoretical magic from poison. There was no answer, and I wondered if I was totally wrong. If she wasn't there, if she wasn't at the scene of the murder, I would still have to find her to ask the questions about Sylvia and Courtney that I didn't really want answers to. If she was there, well, why would she be here, hiding, if she hadn't done anything? Tabitha? I called again. I just want to talk. I hesitated. I'm alone. As soon as I said it, I knew that I'd said the right thing. And I knew that I'd already decided my sister was a murderer. I'd already decided she was guilty. Maybe that's why my gut didn't clench when the blurred section solidified and my sister appeared in front of me. She was sitting on the floor between the two massive blood stains that marred the carpet, resting her palms on each one. Come on in, she said in a dull monotone. She didn't look at me when she said it. I walked between the shelves and immediately heard a crackle behind me. When I turned around, the blurred barrier was back, closing us in. I set it up, she said, still staring at the books beside her, which were shaking with the force of their whispering. There's always been a little baby barrier here, but it's never been so harsh, so active. The day after Sylvia died, Torres called me to her office, and I was sure that she knew. But she didn't know. She just wanted me to set up a stronger barrier, something the students couldn't get past so they couldn't contaminate the crime scene. She needed something that would keep them from taking pictures of the blood. And then after we got back the official Ms. report that said it had been an accident, she told me to leave it up so that the private investigator could take a look, too. She huffed out a breathy little laugh. I remember thinking that there was no private investigator in the world that I would be worried about. I figured there was no one who could possibly figure out what had happened. I had totally forgotten that you lived in the area. Isn't that weird? I sank to the floor beside her, trying not to touch the bloodstains. It's not so weird, I said. I forgot that your school was so close to where I live. It's weird, she insisted. It's weird that we're twins, but I didn't think about you. I didn't think about you at all. I never do. I reached for her hand, and she gently but firmly pulled it away. Something in me whispered, but we were supposed to and I realized that I didn't know how to finish the sentence. Tabby, I said, I think you need to tell me what happened. Why did you kill her? 
Her eyes went wide, dry, staring. What did you say? What happened? Did she cheat on you? I was talking too fast. Was there a fight? Why did you kill Sylvia? I tried to keep my voice as gentle as possible, but it was hard to find a way to soften those words. I never thought of it that way, she said, stroking the bloodstains. I never. You think that's what happened? I was trying to save Sylvia. I watched my sister and wondered if maybe this was worse than I thought. Maybe she was actually just plain crazy. How did you try to save her? I said, but Tabitha shook her head. I tried again. What did you do? I miss mom, my sister murmured. I know you think I don't, but I do. I really do. I wish I could have saved her. My vision went white as I considered what she meant. I wanted to, you know, Tabitha said. I wanted to help her. But the doctors I talked to, the magic ones, they said she was too far gone. They said it was impossible. Her lip curled. Impossible, as if they can't reverse the polarity of magnets and grow a tree in a day and make wine out of milk. I leaned back against the bookshelf nearest me, then flinched forward again as the books buzzed like hornets against my spine. I tried again. Tabitha, what happened? I went into theory, she said, answering an entirely different what happened. I decided that they wouldn't be the ones to tell me what's impossible. She finally looked at me, and her eyes were like the long-abandoned mine shafts that my friends and I had smoked in when we were in high school. We'd loved the entrances to the old silver mines because they were almost impossible to find if you didn't know where you were looking. The mines had been abandoned when they were no longer productive. All the treasure had been scraped away, leaving only holes behind. Do you know what I learned? Tabitha had a smile playing around the edges of her lips. I learned that everything they think is impossible is a lie. The boundaries, she gestured with her hands, describing a shape I couldn't have identified if my life depended on it. They're imaginary. She twitched her fingers and sparks danced between them. I felt the tiny hairs on the backs of my arms rise and hum as my sister watched the electricity she called out of the air. Are you afraid of me? She said to the sparks, and it took me a few seconds to realize that she was actually asking me. Of course not. I lied, hoping the strain in my voice didn't give me away. I could never be afraid of you, Tabby. You're my sister. I was using her name too much, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop saying it, trying to remind her of who we were to each other, who we'd almost had a chance to become. She kept watching the sparks and the books hissed all around us, and I decided to ask her one more time. Tabby, what did you do to Sylvia? Can you tell me? She didn't answer. Please. She opened her mouth, then closed it again without speaking. She shook her head. It'll make me sad. I thought of Tabitha's eyes in the picture Courtney had sent me. I thought of her on my couch in the dark, waiting for me to come home. You're already sad, I said. My sister began to cry. Her head was bowed and her tears fell straight down, splashing onto the dried blood, soaking the crusted carpet with salt. I miss mom, she said again and then again. 
And then I was holding her tight as she gasped and choked, mourning the mother I thought she'd forgotten. I miss mom, and I miss dad. I knew what she meant. Our father hadn't been the same since mom died. He was functional, of course he was. After all these years, he'd have to be. But he was a husk of the father we'd both grown up worshiping. He'd been hollowed out by the loss of our mother, and he'd never really succeeded in filling the space where she'd fit into his life. He'd been searching for a hobby for 16 years. Even then, we'd had to push him into trying new things. He'd spent the year after Mom's death eating cold ravioli out of the can and watching the History Channel for 11 hours a day. I wasn't even sure if he had friends back then. I miss Dad, and I don't want to see him, Tabitha said. I don't ever want to see him again because I'm pretty sure I'm becoming him. What do you mean? I asked, rubbing my hand across her back in small circles. I mean, Sylvia's dead, she spat, just like Mom. She's gone. Tabby, I said carefully. Mom died of cancer. Sylvia was murdered. Tabitha shook her head at me, wiping her eyes with her thumbs and then drying her thumbs on the carpet. No, she said. Sylvia died of cancer, too. I stared at Tabitha, waiting for what she just said to make sense. I'm not sure what you mean. My eyes flicked to the two massive bloodstains. The one on the left was peppered with dark spots where Tabitha's tears had fallen. My sister took a deep breath. Sylvia was sick, Ivy. She started getting tired, just tired. And then she was tired all the time, and then she wasn't hungry, and then her joints started to hurt. My mouth went dry. This sounded familiar, so familiar. So she went to the doctor, and they found cancer. I finished for Tabitha. She didn't nod, but she met my eyes, and I regretted finishing the sentence for her. I shouldn't have taken that from her. She should have been the one to say it. Everywhere, she breathed. It was everywhere. It was in her eyes, it was in her bones, and, and, and in her brain, and her heart. She stared at me with deep intensity, like she was willing me to understand. They said they couldn't help her. They said she had a month, but less even. A slow, uncomfortable heat was building under my skin. This was all so familiar. My mother had died 17 years before, but I wasn't ready for this. I wasn't ready to hear it again. I couldn't imagine how it had felt for Tabitha when cancer came back to take away someone else she loved. So you decided to help her, I said. No, she replied, shaking her head. No, not right away. I told the doctors that they had to try, and they said that they couldn't. And then I went to Mrs. Webb, and I asked her to try, and she said, she said it was impossible. Tabitha spat the word like it was poison she'd sucked from a snake bite. Impossible. She said it couldn't be done. And then it was the first week of school, and Alexandria de Cambrai was in my office saying that if I didn't do surgery on her little friend, she'd get me fired. And that's when I had the idea. My sister's eyes were bright, feverish. I wanted to back away, but I wasn't sure what would happen if I did. I sat there, frozen in place, like she wouldn't see me if I didn't move. So, you did the surgery on Courtney, I said quietly. You did it to see if you could do it. And it worked, 
It worked. I did it and it went great and she's fine. Nothing went wrong. You realize that you didn't sedate her, I said, and I couldn't keep the anger out of my voice as I remembered Courtney sobbing in the hall outside Tabitha's classroom. I also remembered Alexandria's face as she'd asked for a glass of water earlier. She'd been trying to get Tabitha out of the room so she could tell me the truth. I thought she'd been afraid of confessing what she'd done, but I'd had it all wrong. She'd been terrified of Tabitha, terrified of my sister who could take a person apart with a thought. But Tabitha just waved a hand as if I'd criticized the plaque that hung beside a masterpiece. She was fine, Tabitha said. It took me a couple of hours to do the whole thing, longer than it's supposed to take, I think, but then I probably took her apart way more than I needed to. But it worked, Ivy. I reached right in and plucked the pregnancy away. It was gone. She smiled, proud of herself. All those years I spent trying to figure out how I could have done it for Mom, and I finally had it. Something solidified. You'd been trying to figure that out all this time? God, for years. Since the day she died. I worked so hard, Ivy. I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I just thought, you thought that if you worked hard enough, I finished for her. You could do it. You could save her. Tabitha nodded, her eyes shining. She didn't seem to realize that I was quoting her. Yes, exactly, exactly. If you could just remove the emotional aspect, I continued, you could eliminate fatigue. Right, Tabby? She frowned. Wait, what are you talking about? I reached into my bag and pulled out the journal. Her face whitened. Where did you find that? It was in my apartment, I said. I thought it was Sylvia's, but it's yours, isn't it? How often did you go there before I moved in? Were you using it to experiment? She shook her head. I was there all the time, Ivy. I was there every other day, but that was back before it was vacant. When? When it was still Sylvia's place. I stared at her as it all fell together. That's why she was there, crying on my couch the night of my date with Rahul. She wasn't there to see me. She hadn't wanted to have an emotional sister moment. She wasn't coming to me for comfort or looking to bond. No. She was there to remember Sylvia, to remember their relationship, to remember the love she'd had there. I had intruded on her grief because it wasn't supposed to be my apartment at all. It wasn't supposed to be my life. It was supposed to be hers. Tell me the rest, I said, my voice breaking. Tell me about what you did. She took a deep breath. Well, everything worked out great with Courtney, so I told Sylvia I could do it to her, too. I shook my head, but Tabby, and I did it, she said, continuing as if I hadn't said anything. I set up the theoretical magic aisle so that nobody would ever know we were there. I had to set up extra words on either end of the aisle, a little sign about reorganization just in case, and blackout glamours and soundproofing. She trusted me to take care of it. I don't think anyone even came by, though they never do, not that early in the year. Why here? I asked incredulous. My voice was getting shrill and loud. The books fluttered to match me. Why not, I don't know, at home? At your apartment or hers? Why would you do this at the school? I needed the books, Tabitha said simply. We can't take them out of the aisle, and there are texts in here. 
She reached out a fingertip to stroke the spine of a book with no title on the binding, which looked like it was made out of water. There are texts in here that I could never buy without attracting attention. She smiled at me, her gaze distant, as her hand slowly sank into the spine of the book. Tabitha? I said her name sharply, and she blinked a few times before snatching her hand back. I tore my gaze away from the rippling book, although I couldn't stop myself from looking back at it every few seconds. So, all right, you, you set up the aisle, you sterilized it? Of course I sterilized it, she huffed. I'm incredibly good at planning, Ivy. I set up the aisle in a day. And then I had to get a substitute for my classes, and I had to give a couple of other teachers food poisoning so it wouldn't look suspicious that Sylvia and I were both missing. You poisoned people? I said, but she didn't seem to hear me. It took three days, uninterrupted. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't stop to eat. There was so much cancer, Ivy, and it was, it was everywhere. It was like trying to sort oats from rice, but I did it. I got it all. I took all the cancer out. I saved her. She glowed star bright with triumph. That's impossible. I whispered. Tabitha's look curled. Is it? She snapped. She reached into the air in front of her chest and tugged a piece of paper out of it. Is it impossible? Read the coroner's report then. Tell me if it says cancer anywhere. Her voice had grown sharp, impatient. I took the paper, brushing my thumb over the torn corner where she'd pulled it off the missing coroner's report. I didn't read it. It didn't feel important anymore. Why did you take this? I asked. My sister bit her lip, looking away from me. I thought you'd figure it out if you saw the report, she said. I thought that if you saw that she had the same kind of cancer as mom, you'd realize, I nodded, I didn't want to hear more. So what happened then? Why did you, why did she die? Did you two have a fight? I tried to keep my words gentle again, tried to sound like I wouldn't judge her for murdering someone in the middle of a high school library. Did she say something when you put her back together? Tabitha's eyes welled with tears again, and she covered her mouth with both hands, shaking her head. I pressed harder. What happened, Tabitha? You have to tell me what happened. She shuddered. I fell asleep, she whispered, and the tears broke over the edges of her eyelids. I tried so hard to stay awake, but it was three days. Ivy, it was three days. And the whole time, I had to hold every part of her all together, and I couldn't put her back until it was finished, because then the cancer might have spread more, you know? She let out a hysterical laugh as tears streamed down her face, along her jaw, beating on the end of her chin. I was so tired, and I was almost done putting her back together, and I thought I was done. I thought I had performed the final reunification, but, but I was so tired. And I had been working so hard, and I just couldn't do enough. I closed my eyes just for a second. She looked at me, pleading, just for a second. And then when I opened them again, she was... She gestured to the bloodstains. I tried to put her back, but I couldn't do it. Every time I tried, something else fell out, and I couldn't. She pushed at the air with her hands, a sculptor trying to push clay back into the shape of a vase. I couldn't do it. I didn't hold my sister as she sobbed into her hands. 
I didn't lay a comforting palm on her shoulder. Instead, I stared at the bloodstains on the carpet, listening to her cry over the woman who'd left them there. As her gasping sobs began to slow, how long had it been? 20 minutes? 30? I realized that the books were silent. She'd fallen asleep. That was all. She'd saved her girlfriend from the cancer that had eaten our mother alive, and then in the last few minutes, she'd fallen asleep. I didn't know anything about how magical surgeries normally went. But if they were anything like non-magical surgeries, the doctors would have a huge team of people working beside them, scrubbing in and out, providing relief, making sure that the doctor was well-rested and alert. My sister hadn't just done something impossible. She'd done the impossible thing by herself. And she could never tell anyone. Tabitha, I said. I think you have to tell someone. She looked up at me. You mean you have to tell someone, right? I shook my head. No. I think you have to tell someone. I think. I think you have to talk to someone about this. And I think you should stop working at Osthorne. She wiped the back of a shaky hand across her eyes. I don't understand, she said. Well, I said, picking up speed. I mean, Tabitha... I think that what she did to Courtney left her really scared and maybe really hurt. And she's not going to tell anyone that it was you who did it. Not now, anyway. But the longer you're here, the more likely it is that she will tell someone. And who knows how long Alex will keep quiet. If this gets out, they'll put it together, just like I did. She stared at me, her brow furrowed. You're not going to tell anyone? I stood up, brushing myself off. There wasn't anything on my clothes, but it felt like there was something clinging to me. I didn't know if I'd ever be able to get rid of it. I'm not going to tell anyone, I confirmed. But why? Tabitha was still sitting on the floor looking up at me, and I saw my sister there, but I also saw a stranger. I had wanted so badly for us to come back together, sisters and friends again after all those years. I had wanted her to turn out to be just like me in all the right ways. I had wanted her to be mine again. I had wanted us to exist in a world where that was possible. But it would never be possible. She wasn't the same girl who had held my hand in an incubator, who had caught frogs with me, who had helped me smear on my mother's forbidden lipstick under a fort made of bedsheets. She wasn't anyone I really knew. And as I thought about it, I realized that everything I'd thought I knew about her, every little gift of laughter and relationship she'd given me over the past week, it was all fogged over by the fact that I had been trying to solve a murder she'd committed. She was my sister, and that was all she would ever be. It won't bring justice to anything, I said, and as I said it, I felt a steady rain of exhaustion begin to saturate me. I couldn't look at her. But you did something horrible to Courtney. You know that, right? She bit her lip hard, but didn't look away. You did something that could have hurt her so badly, even more than it did, and you didn't protect her the way she needed to be protected. So, look, I rubbed my eyes. I was so tired. Go find a research lab somewhere or something like that. Work there. You can't teach here anymore, okay? 
That's the deal. You leave Osthorn, hell, leave the country. I won't tell anyone what you did, but but you can't come back. Tabitha watched me warily. What are you going to tell Torres? I'll tell her the truth, I said. I'll tell her that the Miz had it right. This was theoretical magic gone wrong. Sylvia reached into a black box and it had a cobra in it. I didn't add that the cobra was named Tabitha Gamble. I didn't think she'd understand if I did say it. She stood up and made to hug me, but I stepped back out of her reach. She stood there, awkward and puffy-faced, as I avoided her eyes. I stepped away, dodging her, and the edge of my foot landed on one of the long arms of a bloodstain. I'm sorry, she said. I started to answer her, to say it's okay, even though none of it was, but she didn't let me get a word in. I'm sorry that I manipulated you. What do you mean? She gave me a rueful half-smile. I got you drunk. I added a compound to your water, something to loosen your consciousness. And then I tried to plant it in your mind that Alexandria de Cambrai should be a suspect. I thought it would throw you off. I even, I even tried to do a little bit of theoretical dynamism. A memory flashed. Tabitha sitting across from me, saying that it seemed strange that the last time Alexandria de Cambrai blackmailed a teacher and didn't get her way, she got aggressive. Her half-smile held as if she was telling me about a prank she'd pulled when we were kids. Well, it worked, I said, a muscle in my jaw spasming as it crystallized. She was the one who drugged me. I suspected Alexandria. I was sure, actually. I was totally certain that she killed Sylvia. She's just a kid with more power than she understands. But you understood exactly how much power she had, didn't you? The half-smile had congealed on my sister's face. The funny thing is, you're the exact person who would have been able to guide her through these next few years. She's about to have a really intense time, and you two are... God, I said, running a hand through my hair. A crazed laugh bubbled up through my chest. You're exactly alike. She might not have been manipulating anyone on purpose, but she was still willing to make people afraid in order to get what she wanted, wasn't she? I was getting loud, but I didn't care. She was still willing to fuck with people's heads, just like you. Do you know, I've spent half the time I've been on this case wondering if I was going crazy. I shook my head and let fatigue snuff out the anger that had started to spark in my belly. It wasn't worth it. She really could have used a mentor like you, I muttered if only as a cautionary fucking tale. Before I left my sister behind in the theoretical magic section of the library, I reached out to brush the spines of the books on the nearest shelf with my fingertips. They were still and silent, like dead things, and my eyes grew suddenly hot with tears over the loss of their whispering. I let the tears flow as I left the silence behind. Chapter 27 I walked out to the Osthorn staff quarters with the weight of 17 years of estrangement and many more to come, resting heavy on my shoulders. I wasn't sure if I could carry it. Not because I'd just spent a little over a week being drugged and lied to and manipulated in every way that these goddamned mages could think of. It wasn't that I was angry and hurt and exhausted. It wasn't that. It was that I didn't know what to do next, how to keep going. 
I told myself that nothing had really changed. I was the exact same amount of alone as I'd been when I took the case. I'd never had anything, not really. Not with Rahul and not with Tabitha. Both of those relationships had been fledgling at best. Rahul was a guy I had been excited about, sure. Infatuated with definitely. Turned on by, no question. But I hadn't developed a real relationship with him yet. I didn't even know his middle name. And Tabitha, it had been nice to imagine becoming friends with her, rekindling that sisterhood we'd lost. I'd been like a kid playing house. I'd been living a ridiculous daydream where I was something more, where I had something more. But it had only been a week, and I had logged more hours in dreams of future closeness than actual interactions with her. I pictured myself going home and lying on the floor in the dark of my living room, staying there until my bones dissolved into the carpet. That, at least, felt like a worthwhile daydream. Before I could do that, I needed to pack up the Osthorn apartment where I'd been staying. I opened the door and froze. At first, I thought I'd walked into the wrong place, but then I realized that I was seeing the apartment through the eyes of a stranger, of a civilian. It hit me like a blow. My chest ached as I took in how far I'd let things go. The story the place told wasn't a good one. Files carpeted the floor. The horrible photos of Sylvia's body were taped to the walls next to notes about the particular arrangement of the corpse. Empty bottles lined the kitchen counter. Rum, gin, wine, 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 wine. A trail of papers led down the hall. The bedroom was down the hall. My knees felt loose. I walked across the living room on faraway feet, shoved a pile of half-crumpled notebook paper off the couch, and let myself collapse into the cushions. I needed to leave. I needed to clean the place up and get out. I needed to go home. I started sobbing. And I couldn't stop. And I didn't want to stop, because stopping would mean trying to find a way to comprehend all of the things I'd learned and all of the things I'd seen and the broken place that my mind had become over the course of the past few weeks. It would mean looking ahead to the drive home, to the flat-pack furniture in my empty apartment, to the bar where my favorite bartender pretended to give a shit about where I'd been and why I hadn't come around for a while. And then a laugh bubbled up out of me, because maybe the bartender really did give a shit. Thank God, I actually felt a pang of guilt at the idea of disappearing, at the idea of making him worry. I was feeling guilty about the way I'd been neglecting the most important person in my life, the person who knew me best, a person I tipped for his time. People don't stick, I thought, that old bruise I couldn't stop pressing. But pressing that bruise didn't give me the same sense of satisfied, aching relief that it was supposed to. Because it wasn't people who didn't stick. It was me. It had always been me. I had always slipped away unnoticed, a guest leaving the wedding before anyone can ask her to make a toast. People didn't stick because I was made of fucking Teflon. I'd always told myself that it was better that way, that being alone was easier, that I wasn't a coward for easing my way out of friendships before they could really start. I closed my eyes so I wouldn't have to look at the mess I'd made. I sat in the dark, and I waited for the worst of it to be over. I'd been alone for years. I'd been cleaning things up on my own for as long as I could remember. This was nothing new. 
I waited for it to pass. It wouldn't stick. The next night, I came back. I had a bottle of wine in one hand and a bag of takeout pho in the other. I passed by the door to my apartment. No, not mine. Sylvia's. I'd stayed there, but it wasn't mine. It never had been. I reminded myself, and it didn't sting as badly as I thought it would. Already, it was less raw. Soon it would turn into a new bruise to press, a bone-deep ache that would throb every time I remembered the place that had never been my home. I passed by the door to that apartment, which was empty now. I passed by the door and kept on going around the courtyard to the door I wanted. I tucked the wine under one arm and knocked. Rahul didn't answer. I knocked again. No sounds came from inside. I sat down on the porch to wait for him, the bottle between my palms, the takeout hot against my thigh. He would come home from work, and I would find out if he was willing to hear an explanation. Maybe he wouldn't be interested. Maybe I would leave, drive back up to my neighborhood, check in with the bartender, leave home later than I'd planned, lie awake in the dark, pressing on bruises. But maybe he would be willing to hear an apology. Maybe he would be willing to let me try. I watched as the late afternoon light went gold, then gray. I waited. Maybe this time I would stick. Maybe this time I would tell the truth. Maybe this time would be different. This is Exosans. We hope you have enjoyed Magic for Liars, a Macmillan audio production from Tor Books. This program was produced by Maddie Argyropoulos. Text copyright 2019 by Sarah Gailey. Production copyright 2019 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.